The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. What we want to do is just sort of uh, give you an overview of a process uh, that our state convention offers to you uh, to help your church uh, through an intentional time of uh, looking into its ministry and maybe being more strategic and seeing what type of changes that might be in uh, uh, you know, in store for you to become more effective at reaching your communities. Because what happens is so often our communities sort of change around us, and we uh, really don't notice those changes over a period of time, and we just sort of lose a connectedness to our community. So just want to share with you, I want to introduce some guys that are here with me uh, that serve uh, on our revitalization team. These guys are pastors uh, that are in the sort of the trenches. They're leading churches across our state and a revitalization process themselves, uh, but also help lead our different cohorts. We have, uh, I think the last count is 13 or 14 cohorts across our state that are meeting uh, monthly with pastors and and doing some training, doing some conversation to help that process within their churches. Uh, So this is Rob Roberts. He pastors Brookdale in Siler City, uh, North Carolina. Barry Lawrence, pastor of the Lakes Community Church right outside of Sanford, Fort Bragg area. Uh, Jonathan Blaylock, who's pastor of West Canton Baptist Church up in the western part of the state. And Brother Lee Childs, who is just sort of transitioned out of some leadership. He's enjoying that uh, retirement life, but we're keeping him extremely busy in, in the process of doing all of that. So uh, this is the, the coaches that are working throughout our state to help that uh, process. A couple of things you have on your uh, chair that I want to just sort of draw your attention to. Uh, one of those, the white sheet, is an evaluation. So at the end of this, it would be very beneficial for us if you would take a moment, fill that out, and either put it on this little cart here would be the best place to do it, and we can uh, grab it. Or if you're in a sort of a, a rush to get out and uh, just want to leave it on your seat, we'll grab it there. But whatever uh, you would leave, it would be most uh, appreciative if you would do that. My name, if I didn't introduce myself, is Sandy Marks. I am the Senior Consultant for Church Health and Revitalization for our state convention, and I would like to just expose you to this piece first, uh, because this brochure that you have on your seat is really the beginning piece of, uh, I think, the revitalization process, uh, and it sort of exposes you and your congregation, first of all, to the sort of 10 questions that are in the middle, and those 10 questions are designed to help you really begin the conversation in, in your church about revitalization. And uh, each one of these are just really simple discussion tool. You just sort of uh, take it with your, with your deacons or your congregation as a whole. And this can provide for you at least a good hour, an hour and a half of conversation to really talk about your church and determine whether or not you are a church that's on the incline, recline, or decline. You know, a part of revitalization is just being honest about where you are as a congregation before you begin to move forward. So want to put that piece in your hand. Uh, that's a great conversation piece. If you want to grab a couple of more, uh, we have some empty seats. Feel free to grab a couple of those off of there to begin with. Uh, so what I really want to do is just share with you uh, the process. I want you to think of our process uh, that we use at our state convention in three different phases. And we're going to have each one of our consultants come up and just sort of share the different aspects of the uh, process. I want you to think in terms of the man, the ministry, and the mission uh, as that relates to church revitalization. So we're going to ask, first of all, if Mr. Jonathan Blaylock would come up, and he's going to lead you through some information concerning the man portion of our process. Thank you, Sandy. Um, Sandy just said, uh, as, as he was introducing that, that you need to be honest about where your congregation is. So as a church, you need to be honest about where you are. When we start in this process, we would say the same thing about you as a pastor. You need to be honest about where you are as a pastor. And uh, what we're finding and, and what we know to be true is that, that many of our pastors in a, a reclining or declining church, our pastors are, are, are struggling. The, 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 the pastor is unhealthy. Uh, oftentimes the the, the church is unhealthy, 
largely because the pastor is unhealthy. So uh, where the leader goes, so goes uh, the following. And so uh, we, we are concerned uh, about the, the leader, about the pastor himself. And so when we begin our revitalization process, whether that be one-on-one with you or in the cohort setting, uh, we're going to start uh, with the man. And so we're going to deal with, with you as a pastor personally and, and just spend some time looking in depth uh, into your life, into your heart, into uh, your ministry. Uh, it takes some time to, uh, to, to really to build some trust in that cohort and to know some of these other pastors uh, and to, to know the consultant. Uh, but over time, we want to be able to develop uh, such a relationship that we can really get into uh, to your life first. We believe that uh, before you can uh, make your church healthy or before you can lead your church into good health, uh, you yourself need to be spiritually healthy and even physically uh, healthy in, in some, some regards. So um, a couple of ways that, that we do that, um, or the primary way that we do that, we use a, a resource to facilitate conversation. And uh, many of you may have seen this. How many of you have seen this book right here, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp? Uh, how many of you have read this book? Okay, so we walk through that fairly uh, slowly and uh, uh, we go through that as a group in a cohort uh, setting, and we facilitate use that book to facilitate some conversation uh, with with the other pastors in the group. And uh, Paul Tripp basically has a counseling ministry for pastors, and this book serves as a counseling resource for pastors, and then uh, that allows us to get deeper into uh, some 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 issues maybe in your own life in your own ministry. As you read through uh, Dangerous Calling, you're going to have several um, emotional uh, experiences through there. You're going to uh, first be shocked. Uh, you may be saddened at times, uh, but oftentimes you're going to find some reflection in there. You're going to see it almost as a mirror uh, looking into your own heart and your own soul. Uh, there, there are some uh, warning signs that that trip will give us that we can that we use to elaborate on and to to be able to uh, find those warning signs within your your heart and your life uh, we look into uh, into your all of god we look into uh, your uh, your own personal sermon preparation your own study of the uh, of, of god's word uh, your own fascination and your wonder with who god is uh, we, we talk about the idea of an identity crisis. Uh, sometimes uh, as pastors, we get wrapped up in our identities uh, becomes our identity as, as a pastor or in, in our ministry. You're known as such and such pastor, the pastor of this church. Uh, perhaps you're identified as a, a theologian of a particular camp or a particular uh, seminary. Uh, there, there we are, are academic or uh, uh, scholarly identity. Uh, maybe your identity is wrapped up in being the president of such and such conference uh, or convention or association or, or whatever the case may be. What we're trying to get back to, though, is if our identity is not simply uh, being a child of, of, of the Almighty God. Right. If 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 we're not uh, first identified as a as a blood bought, uh, born again child of God, adopted into His family, redeemed uh, and a redeemed sinner, a member of the body of Christ. I, I'm a pastor too, and uh, one thing I know about pastors is I don't have a pastor. Right. Um, you are the pastor, so the pastor doesn't have a pastor, and we. We, we, we bear the burdens of, of so many of our church members. We hear those, uh, those sad conversations. We, we deal with the divorces and the adulteries and the, and the depression and, 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 and the, the drug-addicted grandchildren and children and, and all of these things just weigh down on us so often. And we, have, we seem to have nobody to, uh, to share that with or, and we, we bottle all that up inside of us and before long... Uh, we are are the one that is unhealthy, and we are the one that is in need of some some spiritual care. And so, uh, as we begin the revitalization process, uh, our goal is to look into your life and see what signs are there that 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 there may be an unhealthy tendency 
in, in your life that we want to come alongside you as a state convention and, and as other pastors in, in your area. We want to come alongside you and, and, and be there for you. Right and, and help you with that and 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 take some of that load and offer some uh, some, uh, some some resources to uh, get you healthier before you start to lead your church to be healthier and so uh, really as as we do that that's um, uh, dependent on, on on the consultant that's anywhere from six months to a a year maybe of of uh, cohort meetings and. Um, and conversations together, and sometimes there is the group. Sometimes they're one on one. You know, you, you may you may want to share, uh, confide in somebody one on one with some of this stuff. So, uh, really, that's uh, that's where we start at in the in the process um, for our revitalization. So, I will you next, Barry. Well, good afternoon. How's everybody? Hanging in there? Yeah. Okay. We don't need. <laughs> No calisthenics or anything needed yet, right? So we're all together here. Um, it's a privilege to be here. And let me, let me just reiterate what Jonathan said, how important that first phase is. Um, as a pastor, a lot of times I look at things and I want a quick solution uh, to what's going on. Uh, and for me personally, uh, focusing on my heart and my marriage and my family is vitally important to, uh, to how healthy I am as I serve the church that God has called me to. So it's not a quick process going through the first phase. Uh, I'm going to talk about the second phase, revitalizing uh, the ministry of the church and making disciples. You know, we're called to, to, to revitalize towards the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God, right, and, and the kingdom. So as we're doing this, we want to keep that at the forefront of our mind. Uh, ultimately, it's about the glory of God and the kingdom growing. So as we get to, to phase two, and we're looking at uh, developing internal systems in the church through some, some health processes and through assessments. Um, the coach that's been meeting with a cohort uh, now becomes more of a consultant, a one-on-one with a pastor that is now moving forward in this process. And also in the process, there, there's been a, a strategy uh, team that has been put together from the church body. So the, the consultant is going to work with the pastor, and then the pastor is going to work with the strategy team within the church to implement uh, what has, has, is coming together. Um, the framework for that is found in something that we're calling the 3D process, 3D process, and, and you see that in your, in your handout, but let me walk through that. Um, it's a time to, to discover, to develop, and to deliver. Discover, develop, and deliver. And in phase two, we walk through the discovery and the development aspects of that process. Um, the first step in, the, in that process is discovery. Uh, we want to look at the community around us. And you probably could, would agree that uh, for many churches, uh, the, the folks around us, the community maybe that was once there has changed a lot. And so we want to look at that, and we also want to look inwardly at the reality of what our church is like right now in comparison. How do we bridge those two, right? How do we bridge those so we can make uh, disciples of those God has brought uh, before us? There are several tools that we use, and, and uh, you may have used some of these. Uh, Mission Insight. Uh, have any of you used that yet, Mission Insight? Yeah, I pastor a church um, between Sanford and Fort Bragg, uh, kind of the Spring Lake area, and heavily military community. And uh, as we planted that church eight years ago, Mission Insight was a a valuable tool because it gave us a good picture, uh, a certain radius around the church of what our community looked like. Now, you might think with the military community, um, have any of you served in the military? Yeah, thank you for your service. But you know that that's an ever-changing community. But there's also a group there that's there uh, pretty consistently. So for us to be able to effectively know our community and how to reach them best, Mission Insight gave us a picture of that demographic. So that's, that's one of the tools that, you, that we use, and we take that data, we interpret it, and say, okay, who is it that is around our church? Um, we also use historical data and a current reality tool. Um, the current reality, not, not what you would like your church to be, but what does your church look like right now? So there's a tool where we can take you know, up to 10 years of data, put it in uh, from the finances, 
uh, the number of people attending, and really look at the trend of where the church is headed. Um, Sandy mentioned earlier about, you know, declining or stagnant. Um, so you can really see, you know, if the church is just surviving, sometimes we don't realize where we're headed. But when you look at that data of, of where you've been and where you are now, sometimes it's pretty alarming of where we are. So we really want to take a reality check in this moment and say, okay, where are we? Um, also a facility review. You know, what facilities do we have at our uh, disposal that can be used to reach the community? Um, and then a strategy development. Okay, now that we know about the community around us, we know more about who we are as a church, how do we bridge those two to be an intentionally disciple-making church? And then the strategy begins to be developed. That's step two. The D is develop. Now the, the consultant, the pastor, and the strategy team, based on what's been discovered through looking at the current reality, um, begins to develop a focused disciple-making strategy. Focused. Uh, just to say we have a strategy is one thing, but focus says we're intentional. Here's where we're headed, and here's what we're going to do based on now what we know about our community and about our church. So um, in, that, in that phase, we, we also uh, use a lot of resources from our state convention. Um, we, we have specialists that can come in and help us uh, based on what we've learned at this point, how to best reach the community around us. And uh, once we get to that point, we then get to uh, phase three, the mission, uh, as we're going to go out. Okay, this is a test time. Three phases. What are the first two phases? Man, ministry, right? Now, three Ds, right? What's the first two Ds? Y'all are, aren't they great? Give them a hand, man. Y'all are listening wonderfully. Now, the, the third phase is the mission phase, and, and the word is intended to indicate what it, how we define it. That's after you've gone through this, this work of assisting the pastor in becoming the leader or, or identifying some of those areas that they need to work in to become that better leader. And then you begin to look at your church and your, your ministries within the church. And through that, you're developing this disciple-making process in your congregation that's specific to where you are. Uh, we don't advocate going somewhere and pulling a canned discipleship process off of a shelf somewhere. This is God working in your church through your pastor, through your strategic leadership team to be able to develop your own specific disciple making process. Then once those things are determined and you begin to develop those ministry strategies, now it's time to then in essence, implement those strategies where you begin to better understand your community and you assess what are the needs of our community so that you can be out influence your community. Because as we understand the basic purpose of the church, it is to influence our community. Wouldn't you agree with that? And so then after you've gone through this process and you develop those strategies, those new ministries that are your your congregation and your community specific, then you begin to implement those. Many of you, um, you may know this or not, many of you may be uh, right in the middle of one of the lost pockets. Y'all familiar with lost pockets in North Carolina? And you may find that you've got other churches that you may know the pastor or are associated with in your association that two or three of you may be in that lost pocket. So part of that mission development is understanding where you are and then developing your own mission to go out and reach your community for Christ or gather with some other churches and y'all begin to decide what can we do as a congregation to be able to impact lostness within our community and within our, our area. So that's, that's that mission part. Let me give you an example. One church I've, I've worked with, we, we walked through the man stage. Um, God did some remarkable stuff as we walked through that man stage. The testimony of one of the guys is he had been in ministry for 25 years. 
all of a sudden he realized he'd been doing ministry completely wrong. That it wasn't about standing up and preaching and seeing how many folks you can get on Sunday morning, but the purpose of the church was to make disciples who make disciples. His testimony is that the first six months that God was really working in his life as we were going through this man phase, he said he'd wake up at night in tears asking God to forgive him because he had been doing ministry wrong. So through this whole process, um, he developed for his congregation through a lot of input with his uh, leadership, a a pathway, a disciple-making pathway for his congregations. One of the things that convicted him personally is I can't expect my congregation and my leaders to be out making disciples if I'm not making disciples. So he started triads. Y'all are familiar with triads? Two, three other guys. He started with his deacons. And so he has started forming triads to begin to help them become disciple makers themselves. Through this whole process, they determined that they're in a college town or not far from a college. And they determined that this is where God wanted their ministry to go. So he contacted a couple of the pastors around him. And now there's three churches who are involved in ministry at this particular college because through this process, the Lord led him to understand we got to make disciples who make disciples and then we got to loosen them, free them up, encourage, recruit them to be able to go out and be in our community making disciples who make disciples. So it's a, it's a great way of being able to look at ministry. It's a great way of being able to step back, take a period of time of assessment, looking at my church. Do, they, do, do my pew-sitting people really understand what Christ's bride is supposed to be about? And using this as an opportunity to teach that mission of the church and then begin through that strategic leadership team that you develop, help your church walk through to where they become on fire for being able to glorify God, make disciples who make disciples, and influence their community. This is a great process to be able to use if your church needs to be revitalized. All right, thank you, Lee. You've heard a little bit about the process. I want to share with you just a little bit about the sort of the, the motivation behind this. Uh, according to sort of our l- latest data, about 86% of our churches in North Carolina are plateaued or declining. And as I travel across our state and talk to many of these churches, oftentimes I get the indication that their motivation is just simply survival. And so I want to say to you up front, I want you to always tell people to think about three words when you think about revitalization. And those three words are an intentional, deliberate process. Intentional, deliberate process. But even understanding that, our motivation has to be such that we're doing this for the right reason. Don't enter into a revitalization process just simply for your church to survive. You say, well, that should be a good motivation. That's not a good motivation. As has already been mentioned, the foundational motivation for revitalization is the glory of God. We should be asking the question, how can our church best bring glory to our God? And, And Nehemiah is a tremendous book for revitalization. If you read the book of Nehemiah in the first few verses, you know, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. And he's at actually the, the winter vacation uh, palace of the king. And he says one of the brothers comes from Jerusalem. And he asks the question, how, how is the remnant doing in Jerusalem? How are things in Jerusalem? And do you remember the answer that was given? Yeah, they, they are lying in ruins. They're in great trouble, he says, and shame. And then what happens to Nehemiah? Nehemiah is absolutely broken. 
Nehemiah falls into this uh, state of prayer. He's falling into this state of fasting. He just goes before God because of the news that he's received about this city lying in ruins and shame. As so I just begin to ask myself, why is Nehemiah so broken? If you think about it, in the context of Nehemiah, when he lived, it wasn't very uncommon for one city to overthrow another city and to leave that city lying in ruins. So he had probably seen that before many times. But there's something about this city that moved Nehemiah to this place of brokenness that he was. And, and the, what moved him there, I think we get some indication in, in what that brother says. He says, they're in great trouble. And then he said, shame. And that sort of intrigued me. And I began to read Nehemiah a little different. You go to chapter 2, where Nehemiah is sort of rallying the troops. And he said, let's go rebuild the walls so that we're, the people of God are no longer suffering. And a lot of the translations translate that word long about 17 of chapter 2. Uh, no, longer in, no longer in trouble. And then he says derision. Well, if you go back to the Hebrew and the original language, you'll discover that that same root word is the, the root word for verse 4 in chapter 1 that's translated shame. You go further on in chapter 2, the same word is used. You go chapter 4, the same word is used. So what really broke Nehemiah's heart was not that this was just some city lying in ruins, but that it was God's city that was lying in ruins. And when those that were not believers in God looked on the city of God, they began to ask, is that a representation of your God? That the provision of your God has your city, His city lying in ruins. And I think that shame had a lot to do because Nehemiah knew that his God deserved a lot more glory than was being received through that city lying in ruins. Mark Clifton from North American Mission Board says it this way, What glory does it bring God when a church closes its doors? So I would suggest to you, what glory does it bring our God when our churches are struggling? It brings God absolutely no glory. What brings our God glory is when our churches are flourishing, when our churches are a vital part of the community that they're placed in. So the very foundation is not just simply what can we do to survive, but the foundational question then becomes, what can we do as a body of Christ to bring the most glory to our God who's deserving of all glory and honor and praise? And the second transition I think that we've got to understand and motivation is that we really have to bring our people back to the point where we really, truly love our community. You know, Jesus summed up everything in the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I think somewhere along the line in our program-driven ministries, we really stop loving our communities. I discovered this as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 25 years. I discovered that I could run programs in my church and not love people at all. That's very humbling. But I discovered if I really love my community, I find myself really making our community a better place and investing in our community. And, and the pivotal scripture is Jeremiah 29. It's one of those chapters where a lot of people really take out of context. Everybody always goes to 29-11, for I know the plans I have for you to prosper you. And we put all those things on, on mugs and we put it on the wall. And it's such a great verse and I just got to be honest with you, it sort of irks me because we take it so far out of context. That the people of God in, in chapter 29 are in exile. They're experiencing judgment for their disobedience. And at the first part, we discover that the false prophets are telling the people, we're just going to be here for a little while. They're delivering this soft message that the people really want to hear. And then God speaks through Jeremiah in chapter 29 and says, tell the people to, to build houses, to plant their lives here, to marry their daughters, to marry their sons, to realize that they are where I have placed them. And then he says this, to seek the welfare of the city. And that's a huge shift for us in ministry. Because anybody familiar with the church growth movement? Where our mentality was we do everything we can possibly do to get our community into our church. 
We even wanted our churches not to even so much look like churches and remove every barrier where we could just get our people into the church. But what we see in Jeremiah 29 is something completely different. We see a people that are in a foreign land that's not their world. It feels like they're in a very foreign world. And most of our churches, the community has changed so much around them that it's like they're living in a foreign world. Think about your community. Think about how much it's changed. Think about the conversations uh, that we're having as a nation as a whole. Think about 20, 30, 40 years ago. Can you believe we would be having the conversations that we're having now? It's like we're living in a foreign land, isn't it? Those around us don't speak our language. They don't have our values. They don't think, they don't value, they don't go about life the way that we do. And the tendency is for us to gather ourselves inside of our churches and to talk about how bad things are on the outside of our churches and even get to the point where we resent our communities for their ungodliness. But the lesson we learn from Jeremiah 29 is, I know where you are, I placed you there. And it may seem like you're in a foreign world, in a foreign land, But what does God want us to do to those cities and those communities that we're in? To love them. And the picture there is not so much doing everything we can to get our community into our church, but the picture then becomes doing everything we possibly can to get our church into our community and to love our community. And folks, that's a huge paradigm shift of our thinking of ministry. And so those are the things that are foundational. Those are the things that are the motivational. Revitalization is not simply just trying to make sure we have enough people and enough money to survive. Motivation is about bringing the absolute most glory to our God that we possibly can. Revitalization is about not just providing programs and inviting people to come to, but us as the people of God going outside of our walls and loving on those that God has entrusted to us. So that's a deliberate, intentional process for that to happen. And we've been working with this process in our state. And like I say, we're up to like 13 or 14 different cohorts. Uh, We're still early in a lot of those, but we're beginning to see some differences that are being uh, made in churches around us. So what I want to end up with this afternoon is just an opportunity for you to ask questions. And, and, and we have these consultants here. I'm going to invite them to sort of just come up. And if you have a question about the process uh, that we can help you discuss through that, walk through that, uh, we would love to do that. Uh, and just a, uh, an indication of where you, where we would go from here. Uh, our intention is to come alongside our associations that are boots on the grounds across our state. Uh, I, I, we, we work with our director of missions, our associational strategist, and, and, and we coordinate with them, and, and we sort of come alongside of them and help partner with them uh, to begin these cohorts in different places a- across our state. So I would say to you, if you're interested in, in being a part of a revitalization cohort, I would just say that's the place to start. Go, go to your director of missions and say, you know, I realize our church may need to be involved in some revitalization, and, and um, we would love to work through that partnership. Uh, and come alongside them as they as they serve you. So let's take a few minutes before we before we sort of end up and see if there are any questions that you might have for myself or any of these guys. Like I said, these guys are in the midst of revitalization themselves. Uh, they're working through churches uh, themselves. They're at different places, so they're a great asset for you. Uh, that if you'd like to just throw a question out at them, one in the back already. Okay, what he's asking is the time uh, parameters. What we have discovered through the several years working through this process, because when we first began it, we sort of entitled it year one, year two, year three. Uh, But what we discovered, what we can control most is year one. When you get into year two, you're going to have churches that are at different places of readiness. Uh, And some churches, you know, they can take this information back and, man, they can really act on it real quickly. 
Some other churches, you have to take information back, and it takes two or three meetings for it to go through a process to get to the point where uh, they're able to make a decision. So it becomes then really based on the readiness of that congregation. Uh, So that's the reason we sort of did away with the time parameters, because at that point, churches are going to be at different places in that process. Anybody want to speak to that? I would say typically you are looking at more or less a three-year process, more or less for the whole process. Uh, But again, it's going to vary. Uh, How many pastors are in the room? All right, leave your hands up and everybody look at each other. And what you're going to discover is we're all different. And we're all going to be at different places and different stages in our own ministries. And also our situations are going to be different. So the idea is you can't just say, well, everybody's going to be from here to here to here to here. This revitalization process is really an ongoing process. No quick fix. Most of our churches didn't get plateaued and declining overnight. And to think within a week or two or three, they're going to get back and just set the world on fire. It's a process, and like Sandy was saying, sometimes it may take, you know, six months to a year. For some pastors, actually longer just to get you to the place where you really feel comfortable leading in that area. And then the next phase is is working with your congregations, and they're going to be at different places too. Anybody, most of you are in here because at some point in time you've struggled, if you're not already struggling with this idea that your churches have plateaued or maybe declining. And again, Uh, You know, again, there's no silver bullet to this, so it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. But you're going to have to realize that this is a process, and it's going to take time. However, we serve a great God. Amen? And He can do anything, and if we'll make ourselves available, God can work through us and work through our families and work through our churches to really make a difference for the kingdom's sake. But, you know, I'm not sure. We can't answer a good question because not all of them are going to be on the same time level. To, to add on to that, brother, even even in the cohort, you'll have some guys that are far far ahead than the other guys. Just just because of what Rob's saying, you've got some guys that are that are month, you know, one or two, three months. Man, they're clicking, they're moving, things are happening, things are changing. You got other guys that so even within the same cohort. In that second phase, you got some guys that are on this end of it, and other guys that are way back here. So it's it, it, it's very varied. And I would also say this because a lot of times we as pastors we're eager to get forward and do something. You know, we feel like we got to put a plan out there, and I think a lot of times our plans aren't received very well because we don't do the work prior. Uh, we don't answer the why question. If we don't spend time with our congregations, um, educating our congregations, explaining to them why we're looking at making these changes, then they're not going to be received very well. So our tendency is, and we have a cohort, if we have a cohort of six or seven people, there's always one or two at the end of sort of phase one that you got to reel them back in a little bit because they're ready to jump to a plan already. And I would say to you, most of these churches, it takes a whole lot longer than you think to answer the why question in their minds. And so to to facilitate change and manage those transitions, we really need to camp and be sure of the why uh, in in our minds and in their minds also. And another thing that is important to have a conversation about is what does revitalization look like? Because we automatically think that if our church experiences revitalization, we're going to baptize 75 people next year. Well, some of these churches are dying because they're in communities that are dying. And, and, and all the jobs have moved away. And, and, and nobody's moving into that community. People are, in fact, moving out of that community. So we really have to think through what does revitalization look like in our community, in our congregation. So there's a lot of groundwork, and I hear the tendency to jump forward and, and move forward because I, I, I like drive throughs I like microwaves like everyone else. But I can assure you, if that time is not spent on the front end, really preparing and really answering those why questions, when you get to the place of implementation, you're going to struggle and your church is not going to be with you. And, and so the managing that transition, and that's one of the things we do in the man process. You know, we, we have some training uh, along the way of managing transitions, transitions, creating disciple-making cultures. We, we, we want to prepare that 
that pastor as much as possible for some of the things that he's going to encounter when he gets to the implementation of the, of the strategies. And to be honest with you, it's easy to come up with a strategy. It's hard to implement that strategy. You know, I can have you a strategy by this afternoon, but we can't implement that. That's what takes time. And so we're looking at changing not just structure, we're looking at changing culture. Uh, and, and, and one guy, I can't remember his name, says you change culture by doing the right thing over a long period of time. And, and so that's a great question, but there's really not an answer. Because you're dealing with so many different type churches at so many different type places with so many different types of polity of how they make decisions and how they act and how they respond to different things. But typically, you're thinking at a minimum of three to five years to get anywhere near uh, the end of this process. And by the way, there is no end of the process. That's right. You because what, you just kind of keep re- rotating. It's not like when we've arrived, now we're going to sit here, okay? Uh, you're going to have to constantly keep re- reevaluating the situation and keep reviving along the way. Sandy, it, one of the, if I can just add, one of the beautiful things about what Sandy's done with, with having these consultants spread across the state and the way the cohort, cohorts are set up, where it is five, six, seven, eight guys. It's not 30 or 40 guys. Um, Sandy's not traveling the entire state. I'm on the western end. Uh, these guys are spread out across the state, and we're willing to take time. To, to to work with somebody if 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 they if it takes you know a, a lot longer for one brother than it than it does for the rest of the other guys we're willing to sit down with them and have those conversations and and go through that process and and, and invest the time that it takes for each individual on an individual basis and that's the beauty of the uh, cohort is that we can be the coach to that whole group but then we can be able to take and on a more individual uh, consulting basis, work with each individual pastor that's part of that cohort to be able to work where his church may be. So it's not only the cohort, but it's also that individual coaching that we can do with each member of the cohort where that person is and where that, that, that pastor's church is. So... Is every declining church a candidate revitalization, or can you be so declined? There's another plan of action for you. Yeah, great question. Thank you for asking that question. Uh, He asked, is every church a candidate for revitalization? Uh, That's declining. And and the answer to that is is no, we don't believe so. There are different modes of uh, models of revitalization. Uh, and one of the things you have in that discussion with the pastor in phase one and phase two is, where is our church? You know, when you're discovering and doing that internal evaluation, if we're down to a church and we, you know, we got 10 or 15 people and, and we really don't have any financial resources, it may be that that church doesn't have the, the resources available uh, to really do an internal revitalization. And there's so many other models of, of revitalization. Uh, we, we've seen churches that do uh, sharing space, uh, you know, with another congregation. We've seen mergers that are effective. We've seen, I know Walker's here, and I know Walker's helped some in his association of, of, of some churches that are just at a point where they're just out of resources, where uh, their motivation is just how can we have a legacy and bring the most glory to God. And sometimes that's just been for a church that's at that place to just simply give their facilities and, and give their building to a, a, a church that's in that community that's reaching people. And what a great way to leave a legacy. You know, what a great way to impact uh, a community with the gospel. So there are other options available for those that really are at a point where, hey, we just don't have the person, per, the personnel resources we don't have the financial resources uh, but there's great way to bring glory to God even through that but there again your motivation has to be the glory of God and not the survival of a name or or survival of a as a particular tradition or whatever so there's there's great ways to do that if your if your motivation is the gospel that's what I love about uh, reading about the apostle Paul his list of non-negotiables was very short and, and on his list was basically the gospel. Anything he could do uh, for the sake of the gospel, he was willing to do. And I think that's a beautiful place for, for congregations to be. And you can really 
uh, make some good impact with that. Thank you, Tommy, for that question. Okay? You've got 10 people who are right. about right. to revitalize and grow. That's right. That's right. East Hickory Baptist Church did in, in Hickory, North Carolina. That's right. You can do it. But if you've got, I'm not going to name another church in a similar area, who had, they had 52 people who said no to these type of people are not entering our doors. Well, guess what? They were not a candidate for revitalization, no matter how many resources they had. That's right. So it kind of depends on, on where the church is. And part of it is our own perspective is to realize there's only one church. Okay, it's not like we're all a bunch of churches in competition with each other. We're trying to be useful for the kingdom of God, and whatever that looks like, you know, in terms of God getting the glory in the process, it really doesn't matter to us. And that's hard for us to say. I mean, it's easy to say in the room, but when we actually get into actually doing it, so, you know, to be honest about all of that and to realize, you know, what we're really all in this together. As long as God's glorified, it really doesn't make any difference what the individual congregation ends up looking like. You may not have enough data, but I was wondering uh, a couple of things. One is when this process begins and you go to phase one and you find out the pastor, as you mentioned, uh, was a problem with the church, does, does or do pastors leave the church? And then, in the old days, intentional interims were brought in to work, and we still use intentional interims. And in my opinion, intentional interims need to use part of what revitalization is all about to help that church to grow. So, how does all that fit in? There, there are. I'll speak to it first, then you guys could jump in. There are. There, there have been occasions where we have gotten to. That you know, through the man portion, and pastors say, you know what, I just really don't feel like I'm the guy for this. You know, my skill set, my giftedness, my calling. I'm just, I don't feel like God's leading me to do this. We've got to points where pastors have said, you know what, I'm really sort of at the, at the end of my ministry, and this isn't a commitment that at this point I'm ready to make. You know, to 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 look at a process of at least you know, four to five years of walking with a congregation and, and say, you know, I, I, I need to just sort of either move out of the way and allow someone else to come in. Uh, so, yeah, we do have those honest conversations where pastors say, you know, just not the right time for me. Uh, I'm not the right person for this. Uh, and to answer your question about the interims, uh, I know that our, our convention is doing a lot of work. I think Tommy's one of those trained transitional pastors. Lee's doing some training with our convention to try to be strategic during that period. And it's some of the same stuff as far as evaluation, uh, looking into your community. And so, Lee, you may be able to answer that question more adequately than myself. You're absolutely right. A, a lot of the same process that, that we teach intentional interim ministers to go through are mirror this whole process. Uh, and, and to me, what that really says is there's really no secret here and, and I would imagine, as you all saw this process, if you really thought about it, we go through very similar processes on making decisions and making choices every day of the uh, every day. So this is not brain science. You don't have to be a, a brain surgeon to be able to figure this out and apply it. But what you've got to have, you've got to have the willingness as a leader to make the changes in your own perspective personality, strengthen some areas that need strengthening, and then be willing to step forward and lead your people and lead the congregation in making some of these changes. So you're absolutely right. These, these uh, processes of revitalization and intentional interim are very much a mirror of what uh, a church is going to go through. So the, the big difference is in the intentional interim ministry, You've got a pastor who goes in knowing I'm fixing to leave, I'm exiting, as opposed with revitalization. You've got an installed pastor who has a history there and who, for all practical intentions, intends to stay there. So that is a different dynamic in being able to lead people 
uh, than that guy who just comes in and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm out of here. You're going to bring in an installed pastor. And, and, and to some extent, that intentional interim has a whole lot more freedom to lead that congregation in making some of those difficult choices and decisions and begin to implement a change of culture He's got a whole lot more freedom than that guy who's been there 15 years and plans on being there another 10 years. So, It also should be said that the idea is, is not to go in and replace the pastor. In other words, even the consultants who are going to be working with you is not there to do your job. Okay, We're there to help you, to train you, to coach you, to encourage you, to go along beside you, but we're not trying to do it for you because you're the, you're God, you're the God-given leader. Okay? So we want you to be the best God-given leader that God can make you to be in His strength. And we just want to help you in the process. I think that, too, that question lends itself to why it's so important that we don't rush through the first phase, that we get an accurate look at the man. Um, just personally, going through dangerous calling, you know, when we think about the glory of God, for me, uh, glory of God begins uh, with my relationship with Him first, my wife, my children, and now my grandchild, am I keeping things in the right order? Is my identity in the ministry, or is it in Christ who wants me to be husband, father, grandfather, and bring glory there? Because I, I had it upside down for a while. So I was carrying all these burdens of ministry, and all the while my wife who is standing here solidly beside me is struggling because I'm not being the husband I'm called to be first. And I'm not being dad like I should be. So that time spent um, just really looking at the reality of where our heart is and our relationship with God and, and our family is so important because then when we get that right, the overflow, a joy returns in ministry and those things that are really going to be uh, effective as the Holy Spirit's working in the life of your family and your church. So to really get an accurate look um, takes time. And we're all, we're, you know, we're all in that process you know, in, in life of continually saying, okay, where am I? Where am I in my walk? So talk about how we get started or how we, how we get in contact with the ball rolling and that kind of thing. I would suggest, first of all, if you're interested, to like I said, we really, I really, my commitment is to work through our strategists in the association, is to you know let them know that you're interested, that you maybe come to this this breakout session, that's something that you're interested in, and maybe there are others in your association interested. And what we usually do from there is, is myself or one of these guys will come to that association and do uh, this sort of a, an informal presentation or interest meeting for maybe the people that weren't here today. And, and after that, usually the associational strategist would just uh, sort of have a debriefing with his pastors and say, you know, is this something that you want to pursue? And then we just sort of begin from there. Uh, so contact your, your uh, associational missionary. Ask him, you know, if you're interested to sort of uh, make contact with me, with the church revitalization office, and we can set up a time to come out to that particular association and talk about the uh, possibility of launching a cohort in that area. Okay. So you're telling me this this program's not a one-on-one with a pastor. This is going through your association. Ideally, ideally. Now, sometimes I will say that there we have pastors that are in areas where there not anybody else in that area that are interested. And being a part of that, we will find a way to serve you as best we can in, in that case. But ideally, there's something about creating that community with other with other pastors in that association. Reading the literature, it seems like it would be a one-on-one -on -one situation with the pastor. Like a participant in the team working straight one-on-one -on -one with the pastor. It is, but it's in the context within that group. So you have the monthly meetings, and then you discuss the individual ministries. Part of that, too, is that we're not, you know, as we go through the process, it is a, you know, Rob said up maybe about three years ideally. Well, at some point, we're going to kind of step out of the way on that, and we want that cohort of pastors within that association that 
all live with, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of one another to have that carried on relationship um, or, you know, wh- whatever your, you know, whatever your association, wherever those pastors are, we want that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm covering the entire western end of the state. And so, you know, I'm, I'm driving an hour, hour and a half one way. And so we want a group of pastors that, that are, we're, we're trying to create that discussion and that, that fellowship amongst those brothers that are all in that same association together that will carry on past where the consultant will, will go with, with that. I do think the individual part comes in as you get further into the process and we actually start working into like phase two when you get into the ministry of working with the pastor as he begins to choose and work with his church and getting a revitalization group and then working with that. So Correct. And you know, that's why it's really it's it's just not feasible for every church and every pastor that would like a consultant you know, to be able to make that available. So that's really ideally is we invest in pastors and association and those guys then invest in each other in that association. The uh, director of ministry commissions uh, joins you in this endeavor. Give me the mental picture of what his role would be. And he can be as involved as he would like to be. Uh, uh, and I say that because... Do I... Let me, let me give you an example of where we're at. Okay. I work with the uh, Piedmont Association and with a group of, with a cohort of Greensboro pastors, okay? Uh, Michael Barrett is the d- director of missions or missionary strategy, whatever the nice and the label we've got where all these are now. And he comes to all of our meetings. He uh, helps to uh, make sure that uh, the guys are constantly contacted to know when the meetings are. He takes part in the, in the discussion, so he's very much involved. Not in every situation you're going to see that with your directors of missions. Some of them want to be involved. Some of them don't really care to. And it just kind of varies from, from situation to situation. And for us, it's worked out ideally because Michael's been a tremendous support for us. You know, and he kind of makes sure they've got whatever kind of literature and stuff that they need, whether these books, things like that. But it's going to vary from association to association. As you well know, they're all different and they're all unique. So you kind of work with each of those situations. And, you know, and ideally, you know, this is something that we, you know, a, a director of mission can say, all right, you know, I've sort of set through this process, man, I feel great. I can now lead this in my association myself. And that's great. You know, that's outstanding that that's able to be able to happen. We're, we're creating more leadership and we're creating more contact through that. This fire has gone out and you've got to try to build that fire back up. Yes, ma'am. We we absolutely do. Uh, it, it is pastoring churches in in our state. I'm just speaking for our state because that's what I know. Pastoring churches in our state is a very difficult calling, and a lot of our churches, uh, a lot of our pastors are really at a point of of emotional uh, burnout. It's a really big issue, and, right? And 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 so. That's the reason that we spend so much time on the front end of this process investing in the pastor uh, because it's vitally important that, that he's really leading out of passion, he's really leading out of joy, uh, and, and not a place where he's really just struggling with inadequacy or, or uh, just being physically, emotionally, spiritually tired. I had the opportunity back several years ago when we first started this process of working with a pastor who was ready to leave the ministry. He had been in his church for 25 years, and it was just kind of caught up with him. His church didn't catch on fire, but he did. And I mean, within a year or so, I mean, he got really encouraged again and had fallen kind of back in love with doing ministry. And that's why you can't measure everybody's success the same way. It all depends on the individual's. But just to see the transformation in his life in terms of his attitude toward ministry was really exciting for us. So yes, if you're not a pastor in this room, make sure you're praying and ministering to your pastor because chances are nobody else is. Uh, There's a pretty good chance of that. So yes, that is a definite need. And like I said, that's a reason that there's so much emphasis that we put on the front end of this uh, is to really help uh, minister to pastors through this process. You know, one of the things that we teach, especially when we begin to talk in terms of the condition of the church today, and as you said, 87% are in either a decline or, or plateaued, 
Um, and, and we can really lose heart if we spend a lot of time. But what we tell folks as we're going through this process is Jesus still only has a plan A for redeeming the lost world, and that's the church. So as difficult as it may be, he's only got one plan, and that's the church. So a decision the church has to make is, are we going to do what we need to, to be part of that plan A? Are we just going to operate out here in church name only and not really be part of what God and Jesus is trying to do in redeeming a lost world? So don't don't get upset when we begin to talk about the condition of the church. It's still Jesus' plan A for redeeming the world. And that's exciting, isn't it?